Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. chapter 3 of Mark, uh, as we read together, I want to look at verses 7 through 20. 7 through 20. So follow along as I read. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If there's one thing that we've been learning from Mark thus far, if we've been paying attention, is that pictures like this of Jesus just won't do. First of all, and I hate to break your bubble, Jesus was never with a white person. <laughs> all right, so let's just get that out of the way off the bat. Uh, Even today, I read a book this week that just reminded us that the average Christian worldwide is a brown woman, all right? Not a white dude, and yet we love to make Jesus a white dude. Uh, So he's always these pastoral, folksy scenes, right? And these images really, I I think this is Mormon, (laughs) frankly. I don't know what's going on there. Um... Jesus and his four wives, apparently, bless them. Uh, but always tranquil. Jesus drank decaf, right? Um, and even though he wasn't a shepherd, he always had a lamb nearby. Um, Jesus was a, well, we say he was a carpenter, actually, probably a mason, more like a stone mason is what he was. So he would have had roughish hands, I would imagine, and uh, he didn't look like uh Scandinavian. And then this, again, what's with him being surrounded by 20th century white kids? I just don't get it. But these are the kinds of scenes that the birds always flew, that uh, he was always surrounded by an appropriate amount of people who were at an appropriate distance, uh, except for lambs that he held close. And, And before I just sound completely mean, I actually don't mind, in a sense, follow me, that they paint Jesus white in the same way I don't mind that in Africa they paint Jesus African. 
because Jesus took up our humanity, right? And that's the theological point behind these pictures, I hope. The thing I have against these pictures is that they're also completely unbiblical and that Jesus' day in and day out life would have looked really chaotic. I mean, if we read this scene, uh, whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. That would be distracting, wouldn't it? Uh, and, and when it says that the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and it was so bad he had to tell his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, and that's the Greek word phlebos, which means crush. And he'd healed so many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And so it was chaotic. And, and the reason that Jesus would have that boat there ready is because he came to kind of teach. He did come to do miracles. And of course, he came to die as our substitute. But he wanted to declare what the kingdom of God was to be like. And there was constant crushing. He had to go out into remote places that people were afraid of. When it says wilderness, don't think of that scene from Nacho Libre where you don't even know Nacho Libre, do you? But for those of you who do know Nacho Libre, he goes out into the wilderness and he's only like five yards from the city. No, Jesus went out into the wilderness and in those days they thought that there was a wilderness demon called Azalel and they didn't want to have anything to do with him and so he had to go out to places like that and up to remote places and on mountains in order to actually get things done. It was, it was a chaotic mess. It, it wasn't that. I mean, bless. What are we doing? If you got pictures like that in your house, I'm not telling you to take them down. Just take them down when I visit. I'm kidding. So, no, I'm not. Uh, so, we, we've got to move away from this folksy, pastoral stereotype of Jesus surrounded by lambs and children at an appropriate distance. Because Mark gives us the picture that he was constantly on the go. And we've seen so far that his popularity has really risen so that a lot of people follow him. We see that in today's text. But we're also coming in Mark off of a series of five stories where Jesus interacts with the leadership of Israel in such a way that if you look back up at chapter 3, verse 6, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And we said last week that the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along, but they had a common enemy. They all felt threatened. And so after these five stories that Jesus has where he clashes with the Pharisees about fasting and about the Sabbath a couple of times and about the kind of people with whom he kept company, it seems like the leadership of Israel has cast their vote against Jesus, both the Herodians and the Pharisees. And I can imagine that they're saying this guy is a mess. They called him a drunkard and a, a glutton. They didn't think very highly of him at all. And so what we see in today's text is a kind of a summary paragraph where Mark is catching us up and kind of letting us know the same thing that John said. Hey, if I wrote out everything that Jesus did in his ministry, it would fill more books than there were uh, to fill in the world. Uh, and so this is a, a summary paragraph. But it's, it's also a, a transitionary paragraph 
Because having now been rejected by the leadership of Israel, Jesus is going to seek to establish a true Israel. And he's going to call his disciples to himself. And we're going to learn a lot in this text, some fundamental truths about the people that uh, Jesus is now creating. And so Mark puts in some key words in the original language and phrases things in such a way that there's actually a lot in this summary paragraph that I, I want us to see this morning as we think particularly on this idea of Jesus teaching us some fundamental truths and Mark teaching us some fundamental truths about this new people that Jesus is creating now that he has begun to be rejected by the leadership of Israel and indeed one day by Israel itself. So there's a couple things I want us to note. First, I want us to note my clicker's not working. Ellie, can you go to the first slide? Here's the first thing Mark teaches us about this new people that Jesus is creating. The first is that Jesus' followers are sovereignly called. Jesus' followers are sovereignly called. Listen to what one commentator says. The setting of the call of the 12 in verse 13 and 14 underscores how in every conceivable way the authority of Jesus to determine and constitute his followers. You see it in the way that Mark is writing. So, As a matter of fact, so like if you knew the history of the day, you would know this even more. Jesus' calling is, is one of a kind. In those days, choosing a rabbi was like choosing your school, right? What college you wanted to go to. I'm graduated from high school now. Uh, do I want to go to USC, Clemson, Coastal Carolina? Do I want to go out of state? Uh, I'm going to apply. But really, what college you, you choose comes down to what college you what? Choose, uh, as long as they accept you. And it was the same way with rabbis in those days. Rabbis did not call disciples. Rabbis were chosen by their disciples. And a rabbi would never dare leave the impression that his person superseded the Torah. But Jesus is very clear that he's the one calling his people. As a matter of fact, the Greek is like more emphatic than we realize because it basically says that Jesus summoned his disciples. Which is a great thing because it means that the society that he's creating, this church, that the fundamental thing that's going to be true about the people who follow Jesus is not what they look like or where they came from or what they do or this. We'll see this when we look at the apostles. They were a mixed bag of losers. But the thing that held them together is that they had been called out of darkness into light by the sovereign voice of God. And, and, and it's interesting some of the words that are used here because there's actually creational language used here because it says uh, in verses 13 and 14, it says this, uh, and he went up to the mountain and he called or summoned to him those whom he desired his will. And then it says this in verse 14, and he appointed 12. Now that is a weird thing to translate that because in the original language, it literally says, and he made 12. He made 12. And the word there is, it's a Greek word, apoiosin, which 
is a word that's used to translate the Old Testament in Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It's that same word. And so the picture here of Jesus calling these disciples is not him kind of looking over a crowd and going, God's on one side, the devil's on the other side, and you have the deciding vote. It was he sovereignly called 12 and he caused them to follow him. He summoned them as king. He made 12. And it's even highlighted this creational theme down where it says, and he called them apostles. You know why that's interesting? Because maybe only one other place in Mark are they called apostles. He named them apostles. After God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, what did Adam do? He named the animals. And a lot of scholars look at that and go, we're, we're talking creational themes here because he doesn't name them apostles anywhere else. They're just called his disciples. And so this commentator is right. The setting of the call of the 12 in verses 13 through 14 underscores in every conceivable way the authority of Jesus to determine and to constitute his followers. And do you want to know something that might be a little bit controversial if it just weren't so plainly biblical is that the rest of the New Testament does the same thing. Amen? So you have Ephesians 2 that says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once also walked in the lust of our flesh, denying God. We're dead. You know what dead means in Greek? Dead. And again, I don't advise that you do this, but if you were to go up and kick a dead body, would that dead body, like, rise up and do anything? Dead means characterized by an inability to respond. And so we were unable to respond. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the prince of the power there. That is, we walked according to the spirit of the devil. And then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. Or Romans 9, which says that the whole course of salvation is this, that salvation is according to him who calls, not according to him who wills. Now, you may not like me right now. Take it up with the Lord. Seriously. I'm not saying there's no place for our choice in this. I'm telling you, the choice is a response to the call. The call is not a response to the choice. Did you choose Jesus? You most certainly did. I did. I remember my hands white knuckling those pews, not wanting to go, but in the end, I went. It's just that that choice came out of a new nature that had been given me by God with the call of Christ. Because before that, I chose against God every single time. And so this new people that God is creating... Jesus' followers are going to be a sovereignly called people. They've been made by him, and they have been named by him. And here's what this means. This means that the fundamental thing that is true about me is also true about you. And it's not that I'm a white, red-headed dude 
He's roughly 230 pounds, uh, who comes from Lugoff, South Carolina. The most fundamentally true thing about me is that I have been called by Christ, and that is why I can have fellowship and society with anybody else who the fundamentally true thing about them is not their history, not their past sins, not the things that they were a victim of, but the thing that is most true about you is that you were also called by Jesus. And if Jesus called you out and he called me out, then there is nothing that should keep me from you. And so Jesus' followers here in this passage are sovereignly called the second thing about them is that they're a mixed bag of losers. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, Mark seems to make a point, a geographical point, in verses 7 and 8. Listen to what it says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan, that's up from the north, and around Tyre and Sidon, which is way over to the west, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I've told you this before. When I took an Old Testament course in seminary, one of the first things the professor had me do was memorize a map of Israel, and I hated it until I had done it, and I started reading the Bible again. And so often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, part of the point that the author is making is a geographical one. And what you have here is you have people called from here, people called from here, people called from here, people called from here, and people from over here. They came from everywhere. And there actually is a pretty significant ethnic diversity in the crowd. Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem were principally Jewish territories. Idumea and the Transjordan were mixed Jewish-Gentile regions, and Tyre and Sidon were largely, if not entirely, Gentile regions. And so around Jesus now gathers this rabble of people that come from all different kinds of places, and he's calling them together around him. And not only do they come from everywhere, they come from various backgrounds. And I'm sure at some point, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard a sermon about this. But if Jesus was trying to make a sticky team, he wouldn't have chosen the people that he chose. All right? Like in the 80s and the 90s, church growth people would say, all right, suburban megachurch, if you want to grow, here's what you do. You find your ideal person and you structure your service and your ministries to serve that ideal person, and then those people would come in. And in suburban America, most of those people ended up being upper-middle-class white people, right? Jesus didn't follow the instruction of church growth people. Why? Well, A, of his disciples, none of them were from Jerusalem. Think about that. Where was the temple? Where was the scribes? Where was all the action? Where did God apparently reside? And Jesus chose no one from there. Now down in America, it's people from the south that get made fun of for their accent, right? In Israel, it was the opposite. It was people from the north. Now, people from the north, y'all got weird accents. Um... But the country bumpkins lived up north. They lived up near the north where all the pagan nations were 
and those poor northerners, they didn't live close to the temple, close to the presence of God. They lived near those pagans, and they were always being influenced by them. Where did Jesus call his followers from? Up north. You have people like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were respectable, middle-class dudes. They were fishermen. But then you have Levi, who we looked at last time, who was a tax collector who probably collected the tax on who? Fishermen. So imagine that you were like audited by a tax person and on Sunday you looked up and they were worshiping beside you in church. How would you feel? Then you had people like Simon, who is a zealot. And when you hear zealot, here's what I want you to hear. Freedom fighter slash terrorist depends on who you ask. Like maybe murdered people. And then Judas Iscariot, they don't know what Iscariot technically means. It could mean Ish Karioth, which means man, Ish in Hebrew, man of Karioth. It could also mean dagger man. And all of these different people, Judas accepted, had reoriented their lives around Jesus. And now he called them together. And this was no haphazard choice. Luke tells us that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he made the choice, and yet he handpicked these 12. And so Jesus picks a mixed bag of losers. I hate to break this to you and to me this morning. Uh, understand what I mean by this. Being a Christian is kind of a mark against your character in polite society. Because what does 1 Corinthians tell us? Did God choose the mighty and the noble? Did he choose the illiterati, the, the educated folks? Did he choose uh, the academics? Did he choose the rich? Man, only very rarely. It says, no, he chose those things which are least. He chose those things which are despised, those things which are not, in order to shame the things that are. And so what happened is all of these men had to lay down their hot button issues. I'm reading a book right now on how to communicate with people. Some of you are thinking, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> how to carry on conversations. My wife is marking parts of that book up for me. After 19 years, Drew, I didn't know you'd be this quiet. Pray for her. And one of the things it talks about in carrying on conversations is to find somebody's hot button issue. That is those things they really cared about, right? And, and if you can get somebody talking about what they really care about, then you'll get them talking. And then you share about what you really care about and you can carry on a conversation that way. Jesus basically looked at all these dudes and he said, all right, your hot button issues, that thing you're willing to murder over, lay that down. Uh, your identity as uh, a scandal and uh, a cheat and a liar, lay that down. And you guys who think you're just respectful, respectable middle-class people lay that down here now is your fundamental identity i've called you you follow me and we'll apply that in a minute but let me just go ahead and give you this when it comes to church life listen to me relax it's supposed to be hard relax it's supposed to be hard 
And then the third thing we see is that Jesus' followers are the new Israel. This again, Drew, we just got out of the book of Revelation where you made that point over and over again. And before that, you were in Matthew chapter 5 where you made that point. And now we're in Mark. I'm just trying to get you guys to see something that's true. That everywhere in the New Testament, it seems to me that I look that the church is the fulfilled Israel. Why do, where do I get that from? Well, again, if you're a good reader of the Bible, and that's my number one job to make us good readers of the Bible, when it says things like in verse 13, and he went up on what? The mountain. Now, again, we don't know what mountain that was. Some translations translate it, he went up into the hills, but it's clearly the mountain Haoros. We don't know what mountain it is, but the, the mountain that it was was not the problem. It's that he went up on a mountain because in the Old Testament, when God was going to reveal himself, when he called and uh, inaugurated his people, Israel, where did he do it? At, at the mountain. And so what we have here is Mark just giving a little bit of a head nod to the fact that Jesus is like this new mixture of Moses and Yahweh into one, God and man. And that he is constituting this new Israel because, goodness gracious, how many disciples were there? Twelve, right? Four times in the New Testament we're given the list of the twelve apostles. And there's little differences between them and all those things can be reconciled. But the names aren't the important thing. What's the important thing? Twelve. Because this was Jesus saying... You guys are going to be <clears throat> the fulfillment of what Israel is. And if you knew the times, you'd be able to see this clearly. Because in those days, everybody knew that Israel as a whole was really messed up. And everybody was working out some kind of way to get into the real Israel that God was going to bless when the kingdom came. And so you had, uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 50s. Uh, they, were, they were found in some caves like held by a community called the Qumran community. And they thought, well, if we're going to be real Israelites, we got to get out away from the city and be like monks living in the hills. And they were really zealous people uh, for ritual purity. And so they lived out in uh, the sticks, out in the, the wilderness. And a lot of people say they were a lot like John the Baptist. They were a very interesting group. We know a whole lot about the Old Testament because of them. Praise the Lord that they kept their scrolls in clay pots that had the right level of humility, humility, humidity, so that we could find all kinds of scrolls. It's amazing. Then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't fundamentally those legalistic guys. The Pharisees were fundamentally, we want God to bring in the end times. And we know that when that happens, it's going to be because his people keep his word. So we're going to focus on keeping his word. And then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees said, really, if we want to have this Israel thing go over the whole world, then we need to just blend in and be like the peoples of the world. And being like them, tell them, how being an Israelite is awesome. And so they were really influenced by the Greeks and their kinds of ways of thinking. So you had all these groups and all of them were saying, which one of us is going to be the one that brings in the kingdom? And in that political and cultural mix, Jesus comes on the scene and he picks these 12 apostles and he names them. And that is his way of saying the way the kingdom is going to come and the people to whom the, the, the project of Israel is going to be picked up is going to be my followers, which is great. You know why? Because every week we read the Old Testament, 
And there may be some of you here thinking, well, goodness gracious, why are we reading the Old Testament? That doesn't even apply to us. That's for Israel. That's going to be reformed in 1,000-year period sometime in the future. And that's for them to read again. I just go, man, go back to your Bible. That's Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand. Anyway, so... The promises of Israel, listen to me, there's only been one person ever who lived the life of a true Israelite that deserves to be the one that carries the torch of Israel, and that was Jesus the Messiah, and by faith, you're in him, which means in him, you are the fulfillment, the true Israel, which means Father Abraham is your father, that is your story. Your ancestors were the ones who came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. <clears throat> your, your descendants, your ancestors were the one who built the temple. That's your story. And now you're to pick up and carry the torch of all the faithful in the Old Testament. Because in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's just the Israel of God. Which means the Old Testament is your testament. But it also means that the charge given to Israel is now your charge, which is what? To be a light to the nations. And now we know even more clearly what the light is. The light is Jesus, and we are to call all people under his lordship to come and to follow him if they want to really truly be flourishing and truly human. So let's apply this. Number one, and we looked at this this morning in in James in our Sunday school class. Like James is talking about don't show any partiality because if a man with gold rings and shiny clothes comes in and you say, you sit up here and one in filthy clothes comes in, you say, hey, you can sit at my feet or you can sit over there on the floor. James says, you're blaspheming. Why? Because your choice is exactly counter to God's choice because James says that God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. And so what what we saw this morning in Sunday school and what we need to see here now is you've got to come to a point where you understand that the, the most distinguishing factor about you is that you have been summoned sovereignly by the Lord of the universe to follow him. And therefore, you are a brother or a sister to everyone else who holds that truth. Which means that I have more in common with a former witch doctor in the Congo who is now a believer than I do with my next door neighbor. Right? And guys, in our day and age, you should be amening the heck out of that. You really should. We're not looking at people the right way. And so fundamentally what's true about you, if that thing is fundamentally true about everyone else, then they can be your brother or your sister. They should be. They are. You have the same father. Secondly, of course Jesus chooses people who on the the face of it are going to be people who won't get along and argue. 
because he's trying to show the world that he's the only thing that can bring us together. So the church is supposed to be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven every week. Every week when we get together, the world should be scratching its head going, man, why did those people get along? That makes no sense. And yet the world looks at us and they say what Dr. King said, which is Sunday is still the most segregated day of the week. Right? I don't like the music they do. Well, first of all, even white people can't get along about music. Right? So what? Are they singing the truth? Yeah. And that's our standard here. I never want you to complain about music unless it's unbiblical. Otherwise, I think you're morally obligated to sing it. <laughs> Amen? Okay, good. And if you go into a church that sings a different kind of music and it's biblical, what are you morally obligated to do? Sing it. But to get back to my point, church is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard, right? Now, that doesn't mean we don't work at it. It just means that if it's hard, then we've got some things to work through. And then third, if we are the new Israel, then we are under obligation uh, in ways that are biblical and in ways that are wise to call all men to come to Jesus. Because he is the light of the world, and we're to be a light unto the world. And you know what? In a lot of places, that's really happening. Did you know that still today, a child raised by secular parents has a 40% chance of becoming a Christian? And that a child raised by two Christian parents only has a 20% chance of not being a Christian? That means a secular child is twice as likely to flip as ours. In 2060, Christianity will still be the dominant religion. And maybe by 2030, Christianity will be dominant in China. So we're not calling people to hold on to some losing side. Jesus is building his kingdom. It will be worldwide. Like I said earlier, and not to anybody else uncomfortable but this is a majority white church we're speak we're, we're the minority now in the church right so we just need to realize that the only thing that matters is that we're called by Christ and that we trust in him and that he is our savior alone and that I am a brother and have obligations to anyone else who has that call when we get there the church stuff will work out somewhat we're still sinners so this morning, if you don't know Jesus, listen to me. <clears throat> the hope of the world is a Jewish hope. And you can be united by faith to the only true Jew who ever lived. And you can take up the mantle of God's Old Testament people. And you can become a part of his church. You can become a part of the kingdom that Jesus is building and one day will bring. And so you need to repent of all other identities you need to repent of all other allegiances, whether it is Republican, Democrat, uh, American, alien. Our fundamental identity here 
is Jesus is Lord. And because that's the case, we know that we're different. And there's a sense in which those differences can still be honored and loved. But we love each other more than our differences because fundamentally we're the same in Christ. This is the lesson that Mark is teaching us. This is the lesson that we need to take to our hearts and work out in our lives together.